Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody out there in the internet stratosphere. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown. I am your host, Matt Koplick. With me today are two Broadway historians. They are Broadway podcasters. You know them and you love them from their hit iTunes podcast series, My Little Tonys. Uh, they are Miss Anna Hulkauer and Tim Kov. Did I say that correctly? You did great. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> I had a blind moment of fear for 0.5 seconds. Welcome, Tim and Anna. How are you guys today? We're good. We're happy to be here. Yes. Um, it's always a pleasure to be on someone else's podcast and not have to edit our own. <laughs> mm. I'm waiting for that day myself. So far, everyone I brought onto my podcast is like, thank you so much for having me. You'll never be on mine. You're a nightmare. <laughs> you know, we we were almost like, we spent so long being like, how can we have guests on our podcast? And we were just like, it's never going to happen. So, you know, if we did, we would invite you on in a heartbeat. I much appreciate that. Um <laughs> That's totally fair. Yeah, I, having listened to your podcast, I was like, yeah, there's there's really no room for anyone because there's just so much for you guys to get through. You're like, in order to survive, we must just like keep going through. Yeah. And it would be unfair to ask anyone else to do like that amount of work or preparation to like, you know, to get in there. Start paying people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that would, that would make a lot more sense. That said, you know, this is the kind of stuff that I snored up for breakfast. So if ever you're like, you know what? Let's take full advantage of Matt Cop. Like I'm like bend me over a barrel, honey. That's what I got to say to me. <laughs> but this isn't what this is about. This is about other things. First of all, bef- before going into this podcast, is there what would you say were like your favorite Tony moments? And then while doing the podcast, what have become Tony moments that have stuck with you that you maybe didn't know beforehand? So that that's a two parter. Hmm. That's such a good question. I mean, I'm basically a journalist. <laughs> um, it's so hard to remember a time before we were doing this podcast. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I think just like the usual stuff, like, you know, dream girls, like the big moments. And I think like, you know, um, I think the first year that I really started watching the Tonys was 2008, I want to say. So I didn't really like grow up watching them. 
Um, and then sort of when YouTube kind of started to become a thing, that was when I really started to dive into those older clips and like someone like Seth Rudetsky who would do breakdowns of like the Avita performance or like the Turkey Lurkey performance. That was sort of my entryway into sort of what is notable about um, the Tonys. So I think that was sort of my um, and then also I was, you know, watching these full ceremonies once um, once I was able to. Um yeah. And then, Tim, do you want to answer then, the first question? Yeah, Tim, then, Tim, then yeah. you. And then Anna, I want to come back with uh, a moment or a performance that you maybe didn't know that uh, well beforehand. Okay. And maybe now are like, oh, yeah, now that I'm a Tony expert, this moment. Tim, moments that you loved before starting the podcast. Yeah. And I think that that's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, I kind of came, I mean, Anna and I are the same age. and but I think Anna had high-speed internet before I did in my childhood home. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so my entryway was really um, those DV- these DVDs that came out at some point in the early 2000s that were like- Broadway Lost Treasures. Broadway- yeah, Broadway Lost Treasures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember, you know, I think the Vita performance was on that. I remember like- just being blown away. I mean, recently I was like, Anna, next time someone asks us what our favorite Tony, what my favorite Tony performance is, it's Evita. Mm. Um, Cause it's just, uh, you know. Obvious. It's a great one, yeah. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, and I think that on that, um, you know, not to jump the gun, but I do think that there was a like, um, Mame, Angela, B. Arthur, that was included on one of those DVDs from like a year, you know, I think sometime in the 80s that they like did like a reunion, Bosom Buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, those are the ones that really sort of, you know, I remember being like really obsessed with and like really wanting. Also, I feel like I have just really recently gotten like obsessed with the musical Nine, but I do think that that uh, Tony performance was like, uh, you know, when I was like in middle school and high school was like, yeah, like what's going on here? This is awesome. Yeah. It's a very fashionable show nine and that performance is very like fashionable. So I don't know. Every time I, I watch it, I'm like, oh, I'm so, I'm so classy. Just really enjoying this. Everybody all in black. Yeah. Everybody all in black and that white set. It's really, really stylized. Any, yeah. any, are there any Tony performances or like Tony speeches that maybe while you've researched have now stuck with you. I'll give you an example. So set the scene. Um, while researching for today's episode, I came across a Tony's, I think it's the 1981 Tony's. Uh, so it's the year of 42nd Street and Pirates of Penzance. And Elizabeth Taylor is reading the nominees for Best Musical. And she's clear, she's like probably a little tipsy. It's been the most exciting experience of my life being here and working on Broadway. And I want to thank everybody that uh, made it possible. Uh, uh, This isn't an acceptance speech. (laughs) I just just want to thank you all. Anyway. (laughs) This is a a very serious moment. So I don't know if this is actually what we're talking about, (laughs) Um, but I feel like the Tony moment that really um, has had a, like, I guess like a Tony faux, I don't, it's not a faux pas. I don't know if this is actually mean that I'm saying this, but I remember seeing the, 
when we've been when we recorded the 1980 episode the sugar babies performance at the 1980 tonys like was very good um mickey rooney and and miller are really selling it but like there is just something that was like a tad disturbing about it to me and i don't know exactly what it is but um it really um affected me and it felt very very lynchian i would say it might be her hair her wig specifically <laughs> it does it simply doesn't the height move. difference I, i'm not <laughs> the sure height but... difference the fact that her wig doesn't move one bit <laughs> it's it's crazy i remember i yeah I don't know. I will say something about that era of Tony Awards that I wish we still had, and it's something that's been lost because it's now moved to Radio City Music Hall, is when it was in a Broadway theater. It just felt a bit more like a community when you watch mm-hmm. it. Every when, especially when like somebody really beloved wins. I even I wrote in my notes in regards to our subject today, but there are other people where this has happened to, like when um when Tyne Daly won for Gypsy or Dorothy Loudon won for Annie, the theater is just howling because they lo- they're like so happy these people have won. I don't know if either of you will be offended by this statement, but I wrote just in very simplistic terms, the gays in the mezzanine make these Tonys <laughs> because they're the ones who are like shouting uh, at the stage when their favorite person wins. Even with Tyne Daly, when she wins for Gypsy, they cut to the mezzanine and you see all the gays are like standing oh, and cheering for her. <laughs> Um, and she Patty. looks fabulous. <laughs> she does look fabulous with that like little spike at the front yes. of her head. Love it. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. So let's just dive right in. Today, we are sort of going through and analyzing the five Tony Ward wins of the historic, the iconic, though apparently not to Ethan Hawke, Angela Lansbury. Anna knows what I'm talking about. Tim, do you know what I'm talking about? I actually don't. <laughs> Anna, do you know what I'm talking Wait. about? Or are you just laughing to be polite? It sounds familiar. I don't know. Is it what? <laughs> there is in. It's now infamous. I want to. It's 2007. So when uh, when Coast of Utopia was like the big play nominee that year, and Ethan Hawke was nominated, Angela Lansbury comes out to present an award, and everyone's like. It's before Blythe Spirit. It's between. Um, it's either, it's either oh, that was the year she was nominated for Deuce, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's presenting, and she, they're like Angela Lansbury. She comes out, and everyone's cheering, everyone's clapping. And after like <laughs> twenty seconds, they cut to Ethan Hawke, who is not clapping and looking around, being like, "I guess everyone's <laughs> clapping for this woman. I don't know why." And wow! Even, I know someone even pulled it out and made a separate video of it, like Ethan Hawke dissing Angela Lansbury. <laughs> and then, if you read some of the comments, some of them are people who are like, "She's Angela Lansbury, clap!" And some people are like, "Good for you, Ethan. Don't be a follower." <laughs> Makes you just realize the world is trash. Wow! I didn't realize that would be such a controversial moment. People really want to create drama with Angela Lansbury. I don't know why. I mean, Ryan Murphy's second season of Feud is going to be between. Ethan Hawke and Angela Lansbury. Feud <laughs> <laughs> FX, Angela Lansbury, Ethan Hawke. So um, what brought us to this subject today? Because I reached out to you guys about a Tony subject and you came back with Angela. What made you say this? Well, I think that is sort of, you know, we're always looking when people like ask us to come on their shows, looking for sort of a different angle to talk about Broadway than like what we do and we don't really get a chance to sort of look at a performer's career and Angela is such first of all we're both obsessed with her and I know that that is um, 
part of the this podcast up until this point that was part of the mission statement right is having people on to talk about their obsessions their broadway obsessions so and you know she's won she's won five tonys she has worked with you know she's been the leading lady for sondheim and jerry herman who are kind of like polar opposites of like um you know important you know shaping broadway songwriters um and she's also had this career where it's like it had sort of these three very distinct sections where it's like when she was young she was sort of this character actress in the movies but never really played a leading role and then she had this incredibly celebrated like Broadway leading lady career and then she has this TV career but her Broadway uh, career is the only one where she got any kind of awards recognition she was always a bridesmaid in all of the other awards and the Tonys were the only ones that were like we respect you we see you we love you so you know it's uh, I think it makes sense. It does. Tim, anything you want to add to that? That's pretty uh, cumulative of everything that we're thinking. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, it's, I think that like the one, of, I guess Anna kind of touched on this, but one of the downfalls of doing the show the way that we're doing is that it provides us like with a very like, I guess maybe like long view of history, but like, yeah, kind of looking at kind of exploring through someone's career and kind of thinking about things that way. I mean, it's just nice to be able to kind of make different connections and look at things not maybe super chronologically or in the uh, scheme of a season, so. Yeah, to quote the great Doctor Who, time is not necessarily linear. It's more of a big blob of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It, totally. I'm sorry, am <laughs> I the only nerd in this room right now? You're not the only nerd in the room. You're the only nerd in that specific uh, subgenre of nerd. Okay. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. Well, I agree with you guys. Angela Lansbury's career is such a fascinating career because it's someone who had such immediate success so early on, then kind of has that success stall, gets another, gets gets a rebirth in a different medium that almost uh, didn't happen because her earlier entries into theater were not as successful and then gets another rebirth in television. And then like another one with Disney, uh, her career just like keeps on. It's not even like she keeps surviving. Like her career just, it's like a Phoenix. It just keeps rising from the ashes, which is really amazing. So in classic Broadway breakdown fashion, I have created a structure for us to go off of. And I know we are going to deviate from that structure constantly. So let's not beat ourselves up. I, I forgive both of you right here, right now, because <laughs> we all know that the reason we're going to go off topic is because of you guys, not because of me. I famously stay on topic every minute of every day. Um, thank you. Thank you for your forgiveness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so brave. <laughs> so... Let's set the scene first. Before we get to Tony Numero Uno, let's sort of, for anyone who maybe knows everything about Laura Benanti, but doesn't know everything about Angela Lansbury, let's like give our listeners a little background on Angela Lansbury, how she got to Broadway in the 1960s from birth to then. Tim, Anna, either of you, if you want to start taking it. Uh... Tim, do you have a, a good grasp on her early life? Do you want to take, do you want to take on that one? Yeah, so I guess let me. I want to get. I want to start with a birth date. I think that that's. <laughs> okay. It's a good place to start. So 
Dame Angela Lansbury, Angela Bridget Lansbury, was born on October 16th, 1925, which means um, as of this recording, she's 95 years young. And she um, was born in London to a middle-class family, and her mother, uh, Moina, was an actress herself, and her um, father, Edgar, was a politician. And they left uh, London in 1940 um, during World War II, and they made their way to um, America. And uh, she and her mo- her mother was, as I said, an actress and was never very successful, never really um, sort of like found her footing. At some point, she makes her way out to Hollywood. I think that she had come to Hollywood to, I forget, which picture she had come to do but um like so it actually didn't actually it's even crazier than that i the only reason i'm interrupting you on this yeah. tim is because it's the ultimate like god that's gotta hurt uh-huh. they moved to la for her mother her mother moina was like uh i guess her, her mom might have like taken a stall in her film career to have kids and whatnot and she was like i'm getting my movie career back on track so they move out to la and moina has all these contacts but isn't really making a break. So both Moina and Angela got hired to work in a department store where Moina was fired and Angela was promoted. So that's like, that's, ooh, that's got to hurt number one. Then Moina's hosting this party with a lot of Hollywood people that she knows, basically like her own little networking thing. And who ends up getting a job out of that party, but Angela Lansbury, <laughs> not oh, Moina. And the God. movie is Gaslight, where she plays Ingrid Bergman's maid and gets an Oscar nomination out of it. So her first movie role ever. So and then she got one for her second movie too, right? For Dorian Gray. Yeah. Because I had heard, I don't, maybe I'm confusing this because I think that she had signed the contract for Dorian Gray first, but then like someone was like, oh, do you want to play this like maid role in Gaslight? So then it kind of was like this, I, but I think, that that could be true too. I what I the or the order of the movies I'm less uh, sure of myself with. I do know that the picture that she got, whatever it was, came from that party, and it was just like, oh, you have the right look, you have the right air. Like, why don't you come in for a screen test for this particular part? And she like just comes in and knocks it out of the park, and. And then they immediately like sign her to a picture deal. And her mom's like, well, that backfired magnificently. <laughs> she has these amazing movies, but it's really the minority of her film career, especially pre-Broadway. Uh, yeah, it's so, and it sort of shines a light on how ridiculous the studio system was because they had this actress who was so fantastic. And her first four pictures, you know, it's, it's, um, it's Gaslight, National Velvet, Picture of Dorian Gray, and The Harvey Girls. Those are her first four movies. And they're all big hits. She's great in all of them. Uh, but she's pigeonholed from there as playing these like scheming vixens. So she's either very highly sexual or she's like purely evil. And then instead of being like, oh, maybe we can start elevating her to lead roles and 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 you know, maybe put her in stuff like a double indemnity kind of movie. They go, no, we're going to put her in B-list movies. And now she's just going to be evil and mothers. And she like, she, it's so weird. She like, she goes from like slutty temptresses to mothers in maybe fi- in the course of five years. Yeah. They First really, they didn't know. Slow eyed vamp, <laughs> then someone's mother, or, then your camp. camp. Like what took Sharon Stone 20 years to finally do Angela Lansbury did in five. It's, <laughs> 
it's quite insane. Yeah, and- something that I was surprised to learn about, um, speaking of Harvey Girls, is that um, it's, I don't know why I was surprised because it doesn't really sound like her, but she, it, her singing voice is dubbed and she was like, at that point, like I wasn't a singer. Yeah. Like, which is very interesting. Well, my favorite piece of Harvey Girl trivia is that after she did that movie, <clears throat> people would like come up to her on the street and yell at her because she was so mean to Judy Garland. <laughs> and they would like, I don't want to say they would like spit on her, but it was like sort of that equivalent because she was like, you know, the evil tramp being mean to America's sweetheart. She was like, I really regret doing that movie. I w- I'm sure she just wanted to yell at them. Listen, guys, Judy Garland snorted coke off of my <laughs> costume while we shot that movie. She's not America's sweetheart. Well, it really comes full circle. I mean, if we want to get into MAME, where they talk about how they had sort of considered Judy Garland coming in to replace her. And by that point, you know, Judy was very close to death and was like very sort of frail and and deteriorated. And she was like, it was really just like a crazy experience seeing her after, you know, all of these years and and how sort of the years had taken a toll and everybody's fortunes had reversed. Yeah. It's, uh, you know. It's I'm, yeah. wibbly wobbly timey wimey timeline we're doing here. And I love <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, and then on top of that, Gypsy, the what could have been with Judy that was that was with Angela. So let's move past Hollywood. Hollywood wasn't very nice to Angie, so we're gonna throw it behind us. Um, she also at one point marries a gay man, doesn't know he's gay until they're married, and then ends it. Which I'm like, wow, you're a terrible ally. Uh, <laughs> which she's yeah. also very honest about. She's like. He was gay. <laughs> yeah. Well, she, she talks about also she, when she got to Los Angeles before she was in movies, she accidentally, I don't know, it, it feels like very Christina Aguilera in Burlesque, but like accidentally discovered like underground gay scene in Los Angeles. And that was sort of her nightlife for a while was just being around all the gays, but it was like very secretive. It's, you know, you knew what bars were gay and who to talk to. And it was very that. That's very fun. Um, and also it reminded me of something that I forgot about is her like apparently this legendary story of her like walking into like some twink like tied up in Steven Sondheim's like, bedroom during a party or something. <laughs> I don't know if it's confirmed or not, but she was now it makes sense that she was like not that scandalized. First of all, I, I'm sure this episode's going to get shut down immediately because you said that. <laughs> That is one of those things where everyone talks about it, but no one's willing to confirm it. So it's like, we're just... I mean, we haven't gotten into Sondheim's sex dungeon on our podcast at all. Yeah, I bring it up way too often. For someone who's (laughs) never seen it, I surprisingly know all about the wallpaper in it. But (laughs) that's neither here nor there. Who here wants to go into MAME? Um, So I will say... I To kind of get the conversation started, she and she says this multiple times that she would have never gotten cast in MAME had Jerry Herman not been in the audience of Anyone Can Whistle and be like, you know, she's the chick who I'm rooting for. Like, this is our MAME. Mm. Um, and yeah. she was like the last on everybody's list for like many, many rounds of casting, which is kind of kind of funny. And also there's like a similar story for Carol Channing and Hello Dolly where it's like, you guys didn't know what you wanted <laughs> until... And I think she had to audition a lot of times before, um, you know, she finally got the role. But um, something that I thought was interesting was that, so it sort of like went through a few different directors and then finally um, Gene, is it Gene Sachs who directed it? So he was B. Arthur's husband, Mr. B. Arthur. And he was like, I think B should do it because she's sort of more in line with like the Rosalind Russell type. Um, But 
um, Jerry Herman had written this score that was like so sort of like heartfelt and like uncynical in comparison to the source material. And it's like you need someone who can sort of fuse, sort of bridge that gap. And it's like it's got to be Angela. Like, there's not that many people who can do it the way that she can. Also, imagine B. Arthur singing If He Walked Into My Life. That I know, is... like, she does not have the, she does not have the range. <laughs> no, yeah. she, she doesn't have the range. And even <laughs> if she, like, tried to act her way through it, you'd be like, this is an LCD trip I do not want to take. Would I make the same mistakes if he walked into my life today? Her casting is one of those things where it's one of those stories we love to hear where, as you mentioned, like she was last on everybody's list. Only Jerry Herman really wanted her. She eventually wowed the producers. And when it was announced she was going to play Mame, it was sort of met with this big huh from the Broadway community because the few people that saw anyone can whistle, you know, liked her, but that wasn't enough people to like really sway anyone else. And her reputation up up until then was like Manchurian Candidate, Harvey Girls, Gaslight. And it was like this woman who was kind of famous, but like wasn't really a big, big movie star. And no one really thought of her as a musical comedy star. So her casting definitely threw everyone for a loop and was sort of, uh, it was a hurdle she had to jump over that I think a lot of other actresses might not have had that hurdle, which also probably adds to why her performance was so good because she had to prove herself. Whereas many other people like probably would have had the ease of, oh, you already love me. It's fine. Yeah, <clears throat> no, for sure. And I, I have her, I have her biography here and she, she talks a lot about how, or everyone was talking about how people were like, she's not going to be able to do this. Like she doesn't have the confidence in herself to sort of make it happen. And it was really like, they really sort of had to pull it out of her to, cause she had had such sort of like a disappointing movie career. And I think she did kind of doubt herself mm. as a leading lady. And finally, <clears throat> finally she was able to pull it together in the end, but it almost, uh, it almost didn't happen. Yeah. And Anyone Can Whistle, I know, definitely damaged her a bit because she didn't think she was a musical theater person. And I feel like Anyone Can Whistle was her way of saying, like, see, I was right. I'm not. And then I'm going to make a fool of myself. But it, I mean, she it did work out for her. She beat Gwen Verdon for Sweet Charity that year. She beat Barbara Harrison on a clear day. Uh, Joan Diener wasn't even nominated for Man of La Mancha, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's there's no contest. No, it's. I mean, there is a contest, but she won. But it's a testament to you know how big her performance was that she beat these other legendary performances. You know, and it's never been revived. Like she really holds the sort of the shadow of that show, like in a way, even more so than Carol Channing and Dolly. I think because there, there, there was a lot of successful like Dolly replacements, but I don't think any of the main replacements were ever people ever thought any of them were as good as Angela. Yeah, that's fair. And even there was that ill-fated 80s attempt at a revival. <laughs> yeah, which her. I did I did look some of that up mm-hmm. in preparation for this podcast because I love to prep. <laughs> the Frank Rich wrote the Times review for it and his review for Angela is great. He's like she's the reason to see the show. Basically like the rest of the production makes you go like 
okay but you know like she's like she holds it all together it's like the only thing i have to say like negative about her is that because she has to work so hard to keep the evening afloat she's not having as much fun with it as she probably did in 66 he's like but that's not her fault it's just the it's a side effect of when you are literally carrying a mammoth on your shoulders <laughs> dear world anna why don't you start us off with dear world what is it what's it about who wants it who doesn't want it all right, we actually just covered this in our last episode, so it's fresh in my mind. Woo! So, Dear World is another Jerry Herman show. It was an adaptation of The Mad Woman of Shio. Mm-hmm. Okay, we never really settled on how to say it. <laughs> I did the show once when I was 13. That's the only reason I know how to pronounce the title. You know, I took four years of French. I should know. <laughs> that was my the, Were you the mute boy or whatever? No, I was a I I was a the sewer man that tells her about the the hole in her house that she can lead the people down. Well, the only reason I mention that is because I think when Jerry Herman was fourteen, he was in a production um, where he played like the mute or the deaf boy or something. Mm. And he's like, oh, I love this show. It makes no sense. Yeah, Um, yeah, so I don't really understand what this show is about, (laughs) despite already having researched it. It's about um, an eccentric older woman who lives in Paris, and there's sort of a quirky cast of characters, and um, it was a notorious flop. People really did not want to see Angela like that. (laughs) They said, bring back Mayhem. And actually, in in the book, they have um, like a picture of where sort of as the run went on, they actually put a picture of her, like a MAME headshot on the program of Dear World because they were, people were just like so put off by the way that she was styled in it. But um, yeah, it seems like it had a lot of problems. Yeah. yeah. They're like, remember her? She's here. She's here somewhere. Yeah. And that was what was interesting is like that was everyone thought that was going to be such a hit because, you know, it's you're bringing back Angela and. Jerry Herman, and I think even the book writers of MAME wrote the book for Dear World. Maybe I'm wrong about that. It was Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee. Did they do MAME? Yeah. I think they did MAME. They did MAME. So everyone was like, oh, this is going to be the big thing. And then when it came to Broadway, everyone's like, oh, right, we forgot the play it's based on is weird and <laughs> makes no sense. Because um, I don't think the play had been on Broadway for like 15 years at that point, 15, almost 20 years. So people had kind of forgotten how bonkers it was. And then when the show came, when the musical came in, they're like, oh, right, this is the play. Um, so that's it. Also, might have been like, you know, a thing where Jerry Herman like loved it so much. He was just like too close to the material where he couldn't, you know, sort of see it for what it was and was like, this is the play that I've loved for so many years. Like, you know, I'm just doing my thing. And everyone was like, we don't want it. <laughs> we don't want it. Some good songs, though. And, oh, yeah. And it does lead to her second win. Uh, so since this is this season is fresher in your guys' brains, I want to talk for a quick second about this telecast for just like a hot second. Some things that I noticed. First of all, this year is similar to the 2005 Tonys for me in that of the four Tony performances, the best musical winner is the performance I like the least. Uh, this is the year of 1776, Zorba, Promises, Promises, and Hair. And... Zorba is awesome. I love the Zorba performance. Always have. Promises, Promises, I think is still iconic. And then the hair performance is actually really solid. 1776 isn't bad. It's just sort of like because they go with a quieter number, I think because Mama Looks Sharp is meant to sort of reference the Vietnam War and they were trying to like showcase that. It just didn't, for me, it didn't pack the same punch as that song has when it's in context of the show. 
<laughs> I think that in general, 1776 is a really hard show to jump in and out of. And I mean, I think that the only really good number to probably do on the Tonys in like a way to really get the spirits up is like sit down john like i mean i say be brave don't be a coward and get betty buckley in there to do he plays the violin (laughs) that is what we want that is what we want with your research do you know if um was 1776 projected to be the winner that year because watching the telecast it feels like the room thought it was going to be promises well i know that like there was there was a separation where um, a few of the shows had opened very, very early in the season and like almost weren't eligible. And then 1776 came like literally on the last day of eligibility and got like the most nomination or no, Zorba had the most. Zorba and Promises, Zorba and Promises it, had the most, but 1776 had a lot. It won the most. That's what it was. It won the most. Um, I think it was sort of the underdog, but by the time like the nominations came out, it was like, okay, this is a contender. I think... Um, I don't know. It didn't really seem like any sort of stuck out as being, um, you know, more favored. But with those with the 60s ones, there's not the same kind of like um, breakdown that we see in the later Tonys where there are literally articles being written, like especially once we get into the 90s that are like, here's what we think is going to win. Like, here's what the season's going to look like. So some of it, um, you know, we sort of have to fill in the blanks ourselves. Um, But I I didn't know. I didn't see any. anything strongly leading in either direction but i mean 1776 got like the best reviews out of all of them yeah and i was gonna say that that i think that opening on broadway was like a really risky thing for that like i think that it was kind of a gamble from the beginning and i think that you know as soon as they opened it just was an automatic success and Mm. they um you know I think that the timing of it all just kind of worked out perfectly for 1776. Yeah. I think maybe the reason why I say that with Promises, because it did feel like Promises got a lot more love on the telecast than 1776 did, not just with like how full out they went with the performance, but like the constant mentions of it and and Mm -hmm. sort of the attitude of the room with certain nominees. It's definitely flashier. Yeah. And I think because Promises had been around for a couple more months, and had some more Broadway clout behind it. The feeling in the room was sort of like, this is the Broadway show of the year. Uh, but yeah. it didn't seem like anyone minded that 1776 won. What it's was- interesting though that you mentioned that because I was kind of thinking like maybe people were showing up for the Burt Bacharach, you know, kind of pop, you know, cause it is I, like- He didn't even go to the Tonys that year though. That was like how little he was invested in it. So maybe there was some backlash where they were like, oh, you think you can just dabble in this? Like, you can just, Mr. Big, like, pop star Hollywood can just come in and do your little show. Be all over Schubert Alley and then walk away. (laughs) Uh, There is a moment at the very beginning, I don't know if you guys remember this, when Carol Burnett lists the nominees for the year. And she ends it with hair and she says it was sort of like, and hair, uh, which gets a laugh from the room, which I feel like is all you need to hear to know like everyone in the theater was like isn't it weird that hair got a best musical nomination i feel like even though it was like that's the show that culturally has still stuck around mm-hmm. at the time everyone's like isn't it weird this that like this like we got 1776 it's a great book musical promises promises you know david merrick produced it and hair the hippie show from downtown yeah the tonys were not happy <laughs> they, or they were not welcoming to hair they were not 
that that's that's the sorry those are those are my only real pieces <laughs> no i think you know we're a little 69 out if you know if you'll excuse the expression <laughs> i totally get it my only other thing was really just like once again i love the energy in the room at these tonys where it's still in a broadway theater it's very much the community the mezzanine is reserved for the fans so you really know like what the what the fans are feeling angela gets applause for her nomination announcement which like i was i like kind of scanned through the telecast and i was like does anyone else get applause when their name is announced before the win and i think she's the first one and then when she does win they go crazy for her the winner is angela lanford You, you never really dare believe that this moment is is going to happen, so you're never really prepared. So I know that you guys like have been all up in 69 for a while, so we can move on if you would like to, but any last thoughts before we, we move along? I wish that there was a Dear World uh, Tony performance um, that yeah. is, yeah. you know, um, there are some real bangers. Um, I would love, I feel like the tea party scene is my favorite um jerry herman creation um, it's definitely one of his most like unique i feel like that was that was his attempt to sort of go outside of his comfort zone yeah i would say yeah. this is his most ex- experimental score um, yeah and audiences said no we don't want that <laughs> yeah. go back to what you were doing exactly jerry herman's like i might try something interesting here and they're like no it's like fine guess i'm doing lacage and clear and quite worth beginning over there's no long uh, so moving on to 1975 for Tony number three which is gypsy something that is very prominent here that'll be that's been prominent in a lot of these Tonys are when there are presenters for presenters I don't know if you guys have noticed that at all <laughs> yes, yes. they'll like, have someone introduce the presenter yeah it's like like West Side Stories, Carol Lawrence. And she's like, thank you. Once Upon a Mattresses, Carol Burnett. And then Carol Burnett comes out to announce the category. I'm like, what is this? That's how you know you're about to see a real big shot. That's how you know. And uh, these 70s Tonys are wacko. This is one of the worst ones. You guys have you guys have covered the 1975 we, Tonys? We've done this one and it is so weird. Okay. So... I, I after watching a solid 30 minutes of this Tony's, I then proceeded to scroll through every single Tony Wikipedia page and see, did they always have themes? Because that's like something that they would do and then they wouldn't do. Um, a lot of them do. Some of them they lean on more heavily than others. But this one was like not they didn't do many where it was like we're so into the theme that we're not going to have any performances from the actual shows that are nominated. Yeah, like the 1980s Tony was like, oh, it's about understudies. And all it was was like people would come out and tell an anecdote and then on with the show, which is cute. This one, like, it's literally about the Winter Garden Theater and the whole thing is about the- We don't see the, the Wiz perform. <laughs> yeah, we don't see the Wiz perform or Shen- we don't see anybody perform from the shows that year. Um, you would even think Gypsy maybe because Gypsy was the last show at the Winter Garden that year, but oh, she does though. She does come out, doesn't she? She does do a little bit. She does it as, yeah. So we, thankfully, we, that's the only one that we get. You're right. I we... take it back. Oh wait, is it is it that year or does she 
open another Tony's with that because she does she does maim on this telecast. Let me see. Oh, maybe that is what it is. She does maim. I know she might do roses. Uh, everything's coming up roses. And if that's the case, then I'm wrong, and I apologize, everybody. But if I'm right, how dare you, Tim, for questioning me? <laughs> Jury's out, but um, I don't. It says on. I mean, we can't trust Wikipedia. I don't. I don't see it. The other thing I will say that the true star of this Tony's, I think, might be Carol Channing's headdress. Oh um, my God, that lights up. Yes, that I guess was a prop from uh, the Vamp, which. It's a show that doesn't exist. We don't. (laughs) No one knows the vamp. No one talks about the vamp. I didn't know the vamp existed until I read Not Since Carrie. But it's it. The plot is like she becomes a star in movies as like a as like a vampy actress, like a like a sex symbol almost. Is that? I feel like that's the plot. I think that's basically it. Yeah. Which you know, I. I, It's like, but she's so ugly. (laughs) She's Carol Channing. (laughs) I mean, I will full disclosure. I never really got carol channing i never really understood the appeal but i especially never really understood like the idea of her in the vamp i was like is this supposed to be funny but now that you said that i'm like i guess that is the joke like carol channing's the most sexual woman alive (laughs) um another thing another thing i had forgotten about this tony's that i'm remembering now that we look about it is that the acting nominations were all over the place. Like some categories had six nominations, but leading actors in a musical only had four. Like again, another kind of weak year after, after 69, not to diminish Angela's achievement, but you know, but you're, no, you're absolutely right. And on top of that, when you look at some of the nominations, like the people that did get in there, it's a little wacky, like Dee Dee Bridgewater winning for essentially five minutes of stage time. Meanwhile, Stephanie Mills isn't even nominated. Yeah. What is this erasure? So I don't rude. know. Yeah, that's incredibly rude of them, especially since The Wiz, you know, won all of its nominations. So it's like, get her in there. She would win. You know, Angela doesn't need another one. Like, I love her, but, you know. You know what's also kind of rude (laughs) is this year where The Wiz wins so much. They in their Winter Garden, like, homage, which, first of all. How the, are you? Are you going to talk about the blackface? Yes. Yes. Yeah. First of all, first of all, in these Tonys, it's like a solid twenty minutes till we get to like an award because they're spending so much time on the history of the Winter Garden. But yes, someone comes out as Al, Al Jolson in blackface, and it is 1975. We absolutely knew better by then, and this is the year of of. The Wiz winning so many Tony Awards, like the very first award up is Dee Dee Bridgewater. And it's just like, my God, how could they think that was like the right thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the worst ceremonies. <laughs> like, yeah, so go on. <laughs> no, I was just saying, you know, winners aside, just like as a ceremony alone, I think this is still probably like the worst that we have covered. <laughs> just like so many strange and bad decisions all around. Tam? And I, what I was going to say is that, like, you know that there's just, like, some old white guy being like, well, we need to include it because it's history, like, freedom of speech. Like, this well, happened. It's like, okay, but, like, it doesn't need to happen again. Yeah. See, I am I am that gay that says, like, it is history. We shouldn't <laughs> ignore history. However, there are some pieces of history that it's like, we don't need to celebrate that part of our history. We can talk about why it's wrong. Like, it'd be wonderful if that happened and Dee Dee Bridgewater went up on that stage and she was like, here are 9,000 reasons why this is not acceptable anymore. <laughs> yeah, or like you could still have him perform a song just not in blackface. Yeah. Like, you know, it's so easy to not do blackface. <laughs> this, 
I think that's the takeaway from this episode, everyone. Anna saying it's so easy to just not do blackface. You just simply don't. And, and yet, and yet, so many people seem to forget that. They truly do. Um, you know who never did blackface? Angela Lansbury and Gypsy. That's true. Although Gypsy is uh, is technically a slur, so you know that's its own can of worms. It is its own can of worms. I think we sort of can sidestep it with this show because it's referencing a woman and a memoir title. So and and her name. Yeah, it's, it's a a real person's name. A real person's title. Yes. So it's it we're it's I don't want to say like it's a loophole because that makes it sound like we're contractually obligated to think about other people's well-being but uh you know it's 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 a an anomaly it's an it's anomaly sidestep um gypsy let's chat let's chat gypsy for a second how how far removed are we from 1975 that we feel like we can talk about it and not have ptsd i'm ready to talk about it damn i am ready i mean i think that this is definitely i think at this point we now we've now um i guess the most recent episode hasn't come out yet but um probably by the time this is released it no it actually still won't be but we've covered every gypsy revival so i feel like it's kind of the gift that keeps giving and- no we haven't we still haven't done bernadette that's the last one. Oh yeah <laughs> well we've done three there have been a lot there have been a lot <clears throat> but this is the the seed that plants really the legacy of gypsy so um Full disclosure, so I told Anna and Tim this. I haven't announced it yet on the pod. So no time like the present. Uh, I am doing sort of a rebranding of Breakdown after this episode, starting with like going through the history of Broadway, through the works of the artists that shaped it for better and for worse. First up is Sondheim because everybody loves Sondheim. And each episode is a different musical. I'm currently doing my research for Gypsy. And what's interesting is like Gypsy and West Side Story kind of had like a reverse Broadway movie trajectory where like West Side Story was appreciated but only did kind of like okay and then the movie made it explode and that's what like gave it its reputation forever the thing with Gypsy was like Gypsy came onto Broadway and everyone's like oh my god this might be the best musical written to date proceeds to not win any Tony Awards because (laughs) everyone's all up in Mary Martin and Fiorello for like political reasons and then the Gypsy movie comes out and like the thinking everyone has is like, oh, maybe Gypsy wasn't as good as we thought it was. It was like, it was Merman. Merman made it good. And it took Angela Lansbury coming to Broadway with this Gypsy to make everyone go, oh no, this show is actually great. You don't need Merman. Um, and then with each revival, it just like keeps on becoming, as you said, the gift that keeps on giving, like after Lansbury and then with Hind Daly, everyone's like, it's been solidified. Gypsy's the best musical that's ever written. I believe Arthur Lawrence directed every Broadway revival except for 2003, right? So this is really him, like, being like, this is my show now. <laughs> like, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm in charge, you know, I'm just going to keep bringing it back. Yeah. Well, Natalie Portman of Black Swan, it's my turn. <laughs> Pretty much. And, you know, he was like, I mean, the, I think the whole narrative around this one is like, Ethel Merman, she was like a personality. She had a great voice. She was a great comedian but she wasn't an actress so they were like now we're bringing in an actress and she's you know really digging into the subtext and we're hearing all the songs and the book in like a whole new way um and I think the only sort of knock on her was that I think Sondheim was like she didn't really understand the vulgarity of it like you know she's this like refined British woman she couldn't really tap into like the vulgar side of of Rose because Rose is kind of like a broad you know and Angela's not really 
it's every actress definitely has brought their own take on it uh tim i I, sorry i keep talking over both of you i'm like anna tim what do you think and then i'm like but first let me tell you what i think so (laughs) tim take the floor for a second please yeah um and i'm actually a little bit surprised that angela you know i think that something that surprised me about learning more about her career is that i think that she has like very um she in her own way has kind of like a diva attitude um and i kind of and she's even mentioned this in some interviews that I've watched where she's like, oh, it's Merman's part. Like, I wouldn't really want to do it. Like, I don't, it isn't right. Like, you know, and I think part of it too is that, um, you know, maybe she was like, didn't know if she could really um, bring it. And I do think that if she didn't kind of originate this role in London rather than, you know, just starting the Broadway revival, I like wonder if she would have signed on. Now's your inning. Stand the world on its ear. Set it spinning. That will be just the beginning. Cutting up like the lights. You've got nothing to hit but the heights. Also, I feel like at this time she was like living in like a remote little town in Ireland. So Mm. it's like, I feel like when she talks about getting the call, maybe this is actually for a different show, but she's like has to like crank her telephone to like get the telegram or something. Yeah. She, because she had with, with MAME came sort of this whirlwind of success that she didn't really ever have. Like her Hollywood career like started off very strong, but it never really got to the heights that it should have. And with Maine came like all these other opportunities and just like constantly working, which then led to sort of a fallout with her personal life. And after Dear World, and then I think specifically after Bedknobs and Broomsticks was when she like took her family and they moved to Ireland. They're like, Hollywood's awful. New York's only slightly better. We're going to Ireland where no one can find us. And if people want me to work, they have to like, they have to get on a boat and find me. Um, Yeah, no, it's, it's, Gypsy is sort of like, it's also she also says in this one she was like I didn't think this would happen and it's like girl third time yeah. in a row you didn't think it was gonna happen who else was it gonna be yeah no one for this one <clears throat> and and this one also I think this the London production did much better like it didn't actually do that well on Broadway like it was a big smash in London and then I think it only ran about a hundred performances on Broadway like it was not really people were not really buying it over here it. It's hard to tell. The stories always differ um, because it was always supposed to be a limited engagement. Mm-hmm. But so like Arthur Lawrence likes to say, oh, it was a huge smash in New York. Angela likes to say, we only made our money back because of the road tour. The, people- the only thing I've learned is never trust Arthur Lawrence. Well, <laughs> as far as Arthur Lawrence is, is concerned, he built the arc. He also is someone who like, the next thing he does has to top their previous one. So anything you read of his, whether it's original story or um, mainly on directing, he kind of will say something a little demeaning about the last thing he did. So like with the gypsies, like you read original story and he's like, Angelo was phenomenal. And I can't remember if it's, if Tyne has done Gypsy yet in an original story, but he's definitely like, Angela's amazing. Then he gets to mainly on directing and he's like, oh, Angela was good, but like, you know, she was a ham. Tyne was good, but she always wanted to cry. Patty, Patty gets it. And I'm like, you don't have to say rude things about the past to compliment your present, Arthur. 
<laughs> well, and I think we actually talked about that when he won in um, 1984 for Lacage Au Full, where he was like, this is by far the best production and the best group of people I've ever worked with. And it's like, <clears throat> you know, you're, you've worked with a lot of people and they're all probably in that room right now. <laughs> like, that's not the nice thing that you think it is. I think that's the most important thing. It's not just that he works with a lot of people. They all were there. They're, they're there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Uh, moving on. 1979. Sweeney Todd. We're at the Schubert Theater. I have two things I just want to say about the Tony ceremony itself. One is something's going on with Angela in this in the Sweeney Todd number. First of all, uh, it's very clear. I think around like 77 through like 82 or 83 they lip sync to the stuff and it's i it's never more clear than with angela and worst pies in london because whoever is her scene partner in this and it's not len cario some dude in the ensemble either he taps her on the shoulder a beat too late or she's like she's not counting when her entrance is in because she turns her head and opens her mouth but doesn't move her mouth and you hear the phrase a customer and she looks like a broken animatronic at Disney World. <laughs> well, thank God we got like the, you know, the 82 recording. So that's like not the only record of her doing that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, the other thing is that Best Little Whorehouse is probably my favorite performance of the evening. And it's not just because it's all prime beef on that stage. I just think it's a really <laughs> wonderful performance. Also, there's... um. Barry Bostwick when he's announcing best musical so at that point it's like Sweeney Todd has basically won so much and they just won book and score and then he's like and finally uh the nominees for best musical and everyone just laughs because they're like why are you even reading the nominees we know it's Sweeney like just open the envelope Barry Angela Angela is Mrs. Lovett in Sweeney Todd fourth Tony Award thoughts what does this mean for her in her career where what is this performance in her career well, as I mentioned earlier, how she's, you know, kind of secretly a diva that um, people might not expect her to be. When she got the call about this show, she was like, huh, so it's called Sweeney Todd and not Nellie Lovett. Like, interesting. <laughs> like, should I do it? Yeah, she's like, I don't want to play any more sidekicks. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but like, they ended up, you know, they were like, okay, we'll beef up the character for you. And, you know, so it's, it's good that she, uh, she did that. But um, I mean, this like this show and her performance in it were really my gateway into like sort of getting obsessed with theater and getting obsessed with Sondheim because like previously I had only known her as I guess like, you know, in Beauty and the Beast. You know, I was a a big Disney Disney fan growing up, Um, loved loved her in that, you sort of was aware of Murder, She Wrote. And then when I saw the the DVD of the um, of the touring production, I it was like you know expanding brain meme. <laughs> I was like this you know what she is capable of like first what a musical is capable of doing, and then what she was capable of doing in that role, like being so funny and so scary, and like <clears throat> you know like the way she sang was so much part of the character in a way that like I hadn't really experienced. Like it was just so seamless everything about it, and th- like that sort of you know brought me to where I am today so that was really my gateway um and you know she and she's really the only one in that recording who sort of understands like how to modulate her performance for for film and like everyone else is either like way too big or like I feel like George Hearn is like a little bit wooden like sometimes he gets there but she is like just 
just perfect. Tim, was this your introduction to Angela as well? Sweeney, or what's, what was your... So, yeah, this actually... So, this is, like, a fun story, is that... Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kevin Smith film, Jersey Girl. <laughs> um, but, of course. Yeah, Halo well... died in the first five minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, I saw that in theaters, and, um, you know, uh, for those familiar with the film film you'll know that um you know it's like ben affleck raising his kid it's ben affleck right it is ben affleck (laughs) ben affleck raising his kid and she's like you know this kind of like precocious jersey girl and uh she like does uh god that's good for like her school talent show Mm -hmm. and um i'm like oh like this is cool like what (laughs) is this and then yeah um i you know i guess from then got the dvd got the cast recording and just was so 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 obsessed and like um you know i think that like this really tapped in especially where i was i guess i was probably 12 at the time where like i feel like i knew i was gay but like kind of figuring it out um but angela lansbury was really this like woman and like musical theater icon that like i didn't have to like pretend that like oh i'm like into her because i like am into girls and she's like a hot girl and like you know whereas like you know so many you know like i feel like so many of my gay friends are like yeah like i had a britney poster on my wall and like my parents were like oh that's like you know because she's hot and you want like a hot picture of a woman on your wall but it's like i feel like angela was like this woman that I could love and that, um, you know, I could identify with and could like, you know, kind of in my head play around with like a Barbie doll in a way where I'm like, what would she be like if she was in Les Mis and played Madame Thenardier? And like, you know, I really think that, yeah, this just like really hit the nail on the head for me and was like really important to my, um, you know, adolescence and my, um, you know, getting really interested in theater, but also, um, you know just in my heart it was a really uh, meaningful performance and experience are you implying that angela lansbury is not sexual because i have an exercise video with her taking a bubble bath (laughs) that begs to disagree with you (laughs) well actually when she's like there's this like very famous hollywood glamour shot of her wearing like a turban and like has like a mink coat on and i'm like okay i can i can see it but you know definitely with like six pounds of makeup on her face and like weird little uh um, rollers curly buns um you know i'm not (laughs) i feel like you would have to uh i feel like even the straightest of straight the straightest person in the world would probably not um, be turned on for that look (laughs) and if they are we might have to do some discussion of of why that is the case yeah uh i mean sweeney todd basically i don't want to go into it too much a to save time for when i do talk about it a couple of weeks from now and because it's like so much has already been discussed uh but would we like argue maybe this is sort of like the high point of her tony's theater career I think I think this is the most complicated role. <clears throat> I think this is the role where she really gets to show off all of her facets in a way that she didn't really get to in, um, you know, like Sondheim wrote it for her. It's it's an incredibly complex role. I, I just don't think she ever had a chance to play anything like that before. And it's like Sondheim was like, I have this genius here and I'm just going to like write everything to sort of show her off, basically. Yeah. And in terms of like a Tony perspective, 
this is really the only time she ever wins in a show that's also like a thing because like Mame's a big hit but the show doesn't win she wins b arthur wins frankie michaels wins it's sort of like they're the big winners of the thing um she wins her dear world and nothing else gypsy you know it's a it's a big cultural event but like gypsy's already been established sweeney todd is like she's part of a new musical that everyone's excited about she wins the show wins the show wins a bunch of stuff it's this big like moment in theater and that is sort of where she leaves broadway for a while Uh, and it's a big it was a big risk too to do this kind of show that's such like controversial subject matter and like it could have been like another dear world where it was you know it closed immediately like she is still sort of and she could have been like no i'm not going to take that kind of risk but she was like i trust you guys and you are going to take good care of me by the sea mr todd that's the life i covet by the sea mr todd oh i know you'd love it you and me mr t we could be alone in the house what we'd almost own down by the sea anything you say I think, I mean, I love Carousel, but I think I probably would say that Sweeney Todd is my favorite all around musical just because it, it's hard to break it. You know, it's like you can do it with like seven people. You can do it with like 50 people in an opera house. Like you can put all of these different concepts on it and it like, it still works. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would say Carousel is my favorite, but I would argue Sweeney's perhaps a better musical. They're both great but Sweeney Todd's better just because as you said it's harder to fuck up Sweeney it is so easy to fuck you can fuck, <laughs> you can fuck up Carousel on page two like Sweeney Todd if you just like follow the blueprint you are good to go yeah. like you, you'll you'll be fine um did either of you see the most recent off-Broadway revival Loves in the Pie Shop yeah it was so good good news is we can jump right ahead to 2009 because she only does two other Broadway outings in between uh she does Mame for a hot second and then she does deuce which is her tony nomination but she doesn't win again until 2009 we're back at radio city musical for the play blythe spirit um i saw this did either of you see blythe spirit i saw it tim you did not it was cute it was cute it's an old coward play it's like very light and very frothy but did you have any memories of her performance in this I just remember being very excited to see her because I was already, you know, deeply obsessed. I was like, you know, she it's funny saying it now, like 11 years later, she's like, you know, well into her 90s. But it's like we didn't know how much longer she had. You know, it's like this is a big deal that she's coming back to Broadway. Like, you got to see Angela. Yeah. Um, and she'd been away for so long. And like, yeah. with, Deuce, with Deuce not doing so well, I was like, will she come back again? Who knows? Yeah. I was like, I'm not interested in Deuce. <laughs> like, I, lo- I love you, Angela. I'm not going to see Deuce, but I did want to see Blythe Spirit. And I mean, people like it anytime you see and it actually going back to Little Shop, it was like seeing the Encores production with Ellen Green where like, I mean, that was like the most excited I've ever seen an audience. But like people just like the audience was so responsive to her and so like excited and warm to see her. Like it almost doesn't matter what is happening on stage when everyone is like, we love you. (laughs) Like, we're glad we're glad to be here. We're glad you're here. Like, it's just, you know, it's a nice experience. Yeah. Yeah, I re- really regret not seeing it. I really do like the play. Um, and, you know, I like that she shows, you know, I I um, have, like, recently listened to, like, an audio, like, radio play version of the play. And, like, I, you know, I could just imagine, like, Angela doing it. Like, <laughs> yeah. She did a great job. Um and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It was definitely a theater filled with people who were just like so happy she was there, so responsive. That's sort of um, the thing with every time I see her in these Tony telecasts, starting with the very first one, because 
I think she shows up as a presenter for 67 for the very first telecast or maybe it's 68. I can't remember one of the two. She's there a lot. She's really like, she's showing up. She's shown up. Um, but it's a, it's a year. She's not nominated. She's presenting. I think it's 67. So she's like just finishing up her year in MAME and the audience response to her already is just like, you would think that she'd been on Broadway for 20 years and had won nine Tonys the way that that audience responds to her. And, and then they continue to respond that way to her for all of her other wins. It's, there's just something about her that's so engaging and likable, even when she plays unlikable characters. Something that I love that I really feels like sums up what Anna is saying is that when she was making, I guess, the Death on the Nile, Death on... A death, death on the, on the nile. nile yeah death on the nile movie with uh betty davis um like she said the whole time on set betty davis was just like you know what angela forget the rest of them like you and me we're pros we're <laughs> pros you're a pro like you get it done like we don't have to wait around all day for you and like i feel like that's totally and angela was like very flattered and was like oh she was lovely but like <laughs> i think that's so true and like who other than betty davis to you know tell you the whole stinking truth <laughs> exactly i was actually going to say in regards to like deuce which is pro- this is perhaps the most anyone's ever spoken of deuce in one sitting in the history of that show's existence <laughs> but i feel like that was like terrence mcnally listened to bosom buddies he was like what if i made this a two-hour play with no songs and made it about tennis and just like that's what that play was and with marion seldes they should have just had the two of them up there like shooting the shit every night. Like that's what that's what the people want to see. You know? And I think that's what the, that's what I think the play was trying to be, but the mistake was they're like, "Well, we scripted it." It's like, "No, just just have Angela Lansbury and Marion Seldes take questions from the audience. I will exactly. pay for that." Yeah. Speaking of which, I part of the preparation for this is I watched her on Phil Donahue in 1990 and like the audience questions were like some of the stupidest questions I've ever heard and she just like handled it like such a champ. Like someone got up and was like, I think I saw your mother in a movie one time. Do you know what movie that is? <laughs> she was like, and she was like, I think that was Unsinkable Molly Brown. Like she had an answer. <laughs> like, Angela, you are a saint <laughs> for, for handling that. I would ask stupid questions though too. I'd be like, "Do you ever eat cheese on the set of Murder She Wrote?" <laughs> that that is better than the question. Some people are just like, "I think you're beautiful and I like you." <laughs> She's like, "Thank you." <laughs> she brings out the child in all of us. Uh, <laughs> well, to get why- back to the Deuce year though, I will say that Julie um, Julie White, who won that year, is an yes. amazing actress, and I'm so happy that she won. And as much I'm as I love Angela, as well. Julie White deserves. I also want to say. When Angela, lo- the two times that Angela does lose, <laughs> first to Julie White and then to Katie Finneran, her losing face is so gracious. And it's not the kind of like the camera's on me gracious. It's like, a, oh, I'm genuinely happy someone now has a Tony that didn't have one before. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's like, I don't I don't need another one. She's like, yeah, I got plenty. It's fine. Final thoughts on Miss Lansbury and her five Tony legacy. Um, You know, I hope she's in like a hermetically sealed box for the the duration of COVID or she should be, she should be number one on the vaccine list in my opinion. Although, although maybe other people, uh, maybe other younger people need it more. <laughs> and I know this vaccine uh, distribution is maybe a little bit of a controversial stance. <laughs> and she's also happens to be like in a town with five people in a house that's nine miles away from everyone. I don't think she necessarily <laughs> needs it right now. Uh, she's not in great danger of getting that's true. COVID. But but should she get back onto a movie set? She's the first one on that set to get that shot, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. 
Dan? Um, I guess my final words are in preparing for this, um, you know, it's just kind of amazing. Like, um, she's really the last of like a, not to use a vulgar phrase, but like kind of a dying breed. It's like amazing that she's lived through so much history. She's, we've gotten to enjoy her in so many different facets. Um, you know, they don't make them like that, this anymore. And, um, I'm just happy, um, that she's come, that she's come into my life. Um, to a reference. that's a main reference everybody yeah um <laughs> so this has been great thank you so much for coming on you two anna tim where can people find you on the social medias we're everywhere at my little tony's Lit- my little tony's i should say i don't want to be like my little tony's the t's are in there <laughs> yeah, my little um, tony's my little tony's and that podcast can be found anywhere where you podcast yes yes anywhere anywhere you want Love it. If you were to send people on their way to YouTube with like one Angela Lansbury video to watch, what would oh. that be for you? Like what would be, what should be my intro to Angela? Um, I don't know about intro, but there's a really nice video of her singing. I don't want to know on the Julie Andrews show from dear world. And it's just like a close up of her face. She's like acting it beautifully singing like an angel. And it's just, you know, it's, uh, I like that video. <laughs> And I'll bring it full circle to what I started off by talking about is uh, she and Miss B. Arthur at the 1988 Tonys uh, doing their classic number from MAME, Bosom Buddies. Yes. B. Arthur basically wearing a costume from Golden Girls right off the rack. (laughs) (laughs) She's definitely wearing a Dorothy's going out on the town outfit, and I'm obsessed with it. When you're that tall, you have to work with what you can get. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, Once again, this has been Broadway Breakdown. This is the end of the old school breakdown before we go into our new format, which is very exciting, very scary, exciting and scared. Please make sure to review, subscribe, like if you can, five stars if you want. Uh, If you hate the podcast and want to leave me a nasty review, go for it, but make sure it's still five stars. So give me a five star review and then write all the things you hate about me in that review. And I will be sure to read it and take it to heart. (laughs) Uh, normally we close out every episode with a diva and we will do that but i usually ask my guests to pick one but i feel like we know who that is right we do know yeah yeah um it's patty lupone (laughs) (laughs) van charise the louise and and angela's gypsy obviously no we're going we're going with the Ange herself uh believe it or not we haven't had her yet so now is a perfect time uh yeah thank you so much for uh being around you too and thank you for listening guys uh that's it take us away angela let me hide every truth from my eyes with the back of my hand let me live in a world full of lies with my head in the sand for my memories all are exciting my memories all are enchanted my memories burning my head in a steady so if my friends, if love is dead, I don't want to know. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org, because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.